The following message is brought to you by Baltimore Bible Church. For more information about this ministry, please visit us online at www.baltimorebiblechurch.org. So now let's open our Bibles and follow along as we loose the scriptures and let them speak. Well, good afternoon, Baltimore Bible Church. For those of you who may not have had the opportunity to meet me, I am Paul Shirley. I'm the pastor of Grace Community Church in Wilmington, Delaware. And I come this afternoon with the greetings of all the saints there. Every time I tell uh, our folks that I am coming to preach for Baltimore Bible Church, they always say two things to me. They say, Pastor, tell all the folks there we love them. And then they also say, Pastor, you better hurry up and get out of here. You never know what the traffic on 95 is going to look like. Uh, so, so we made it here this afternoon, and we're so glad to be with you this afternoon, to be able to fellowship around the truth, and to be able to fellowship with God's people uh, together. This is such a privilege to be able to have this opportunity, and such a privilege to be in fellowship with a, with a sister church like this, with uh, a group of men leading the congregation that shares the same convictions that we do in our church, and of course, uh, to, to be able to share in fellowship with your pastor, Pastor George. Uh, I, I always love coming here to preach. I always feel bad for y'all because instead of George, you get me. Uh, but, because, man, I, I love your pastor. I love your pastor. What a, what a gift from the Lord he is. And, and, you know, George is a big guy, especially compared to me. But George is a big guy, but as big as he is, his heart's even bigger than he is. Well, in just a minute, we're going to open up God's Word together, but before we do, can I pray for us? Father, we come before you with humbled hearts. Lord, we are humbled by the circumstances we face day by day. We're humbled by the sorrows that our hearts often are faced with. Lord, we're we're humbled by the fact that as much as we would love to be able to say that we could handle things all by ourselves, we can't. Lord, our very salvation proves that fact. Lord, we couldn't handle our sin need. We couldn't save our own souls. We needed Your Son, Christ Jesus, to do that for us. And Lord, just as much as we needed Your grace and salvation, we continue daily to come back to our need for grace. In fact, that's why we're here today, Lord. Lord, we're here to receive Your grace. And we pray that that's exactly what You would pour out upon us through Your Word today. Spirit, using Your Word, we pray that You would be filling our hearts with Your grace, a grace that would sanctify, a grace that would strengthen, and Lord, a grace that would sustain us in a wicked world, at least until You send Your Son back for us. Lord, we need that grace today, and we pray that through our time in Your Word, You would be helping us in all these ways. Lord, we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, you can turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 14. John chapter 14 is where we're going to be this morning. We're going to look at the first three verses of John chapter 14. And I've titled this afternoon's message, Truth for Troubled Hearts. And just to set the context a little bit for you, this passage is a part of what Bible teachers refer to as the upper room discourse. This is on the final night of Jesus' public ministry before His arrest and crucifixion. 
This is on the night when Jesus partook of the Passover meal with his disciples. This is on the night when Jesus was gathered together with his closest followers in the upper room. So in John chapters 13 through really 17, you have this amazing collection of intimate teachings from Christ to his followers. This passage contains some of the most intimate and personal teaching that Jesus ever provided to his disciples. And and in the previous chapter to the one we're going to be looking at this afternoon, Jesus has just let his disciples know that he is about to depart from them and where he is going they cannot follow. And they have surmised that what he means by that is he's about to die. In fact, Peter says, no, 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 Lord, that's not going to happen to you. I would follow you even to death. There's no way I'm going to be separated from you. I'll go die with you. And of course, Jesus had to say, no, Peter, you're going to deny me. When I say you can't follow me, you can't follow me. So now his disciples know that he's about to die. And they're being confronted with the reality That for the first time in over three years, they are going to be physically separated from the one whom they've chosen as their master. You can imagine their mindset. You can imagine their sorrow. You can imagine their anxiety. And it's in that context that Jesus speaks these words. Look with me, John 14. I'll read the first three verses. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am you may be also. Anxiety is an important topic for us to consider as believers. Anxiety is important for us to consider as believers, for starters, because it's so common, but then also because it seems to be so difficult to address. In fact, recent studies have shown that at the height of the pandemic, Prescriptions for anti-anxiety medication increase exponentially where tens of millions of people in our country were taking some type of prescription medication to address anxiety in their life. That's a lot of prescriptions. It's estimated by those who do these kinds of clinical studies, it's estimated that 20% of men And 40% of women in America exhibit the signs of clinical anxiety disorder. 20% of men, 40% of women. And by the way, the reason why it's 20% of men and 40% of women is because another 20% of the men are liars. (laughs) Right? Now, Now, when you take all those clinical studies and all those statistics... When you just add that to our own anecdotal understanding that, that who would you consider as being stressed? We're all stressed to some degree, right? 
I mean, the fact of the matter is that in some form or fashion, 100% of people have to deal with anxiety at some level. And that's really what Jesus is addressing here. When Jesus says, let not your hearts be troubled, what's the kind of heart trouble he's talking about? He's talking about the fear on the part of the disciples. The fear of uncertainty, the fear of being without their master. It was an anxiety that must have come rushing over them. And this is the kind of heart trouble that we're all well acquainted with. In fact, many years ago, the author J.C. Ryle wrote these words. Heart trouble is the commonest thing in the world. No rank or class or condition is exempt from it. No bars or bolts or locks can keep it out, partly from inward causes, partly from outward, partly from the body, partly from the mind, partly from what we love, partly from what we fear. The journey of life is full of trouble. Even the best of Christians have many bitter cups to drink between grace and glory. Even the holiest saints find the world a veil of tears. J.C. Ryle is exactly right. We're all going to face heart trouble. We're all going to face the anxieties of life. And this is exactly the kind of passage that we need in order to face the anxieties of life. You see, really, John 14 is a passage that is filled with some incredible theology, but at the heart of this theology is this idea that John 14 is a passage for those with troubled hearts. In fact, that's the very first command of the passage, isn't it? Let not your hearts be troubled. That's how Jesus begins. And then as Jesus closes out the chapter, Jesus again says in verse 27, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. That's how Jesus opens this section. That's how Jesus closes this section. And everything in between is aimed at comforting our troubled hearts. John 14 is a passage for anxious souls. And when our hearts are troubled, when our souls are anxious, there's something that we need more than anything else. What our hearts need in the midst of anxiety, when we're battling the temptation to be anxious, when we're battling the temptation to disobey the biblical command to not be anxious about anything, what we need more than anything is truth. Think about it with me for a second. What is anxiety? Well, the way I would describe anxiety is anxiety is the way that our flesh loves to respond to uncertainty. We hate uncertainty. We hate uncertainty. When we don't know what's going to happen, we, we hate that. I have the opportunity to to, to coach some of my kids in, in softball. And, and one of the things I've noticed over the years is some of the girls go out there and, and they don't do well because they're afraid to strike out. But one of the things that's interesting to me is not that they're afraid to strike out, it's that after they strike out, it almost seems to lighten their load. I mean, coach, I'm so afraid I'm going to strike out. I'm so afraid I'm going to strike out. Whew, I struck out, got that over with. Whew. It's the strangest thing. But when we think about it, 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 it makes sense, doesn't it? 
Sometimes the uncertainty of what's going to happen is worse than what happens in and of itself. And that's where anxiety comes in. If, if anger is how our flesh responds when we didn't get what we wanted to, that's what James 4 says, anger is an unfulfilled desire, unfulfilled fleshly desire. You wanted something and you didn't get it. Next time you're angry, just stop yourself and say, what did I want that I'm not getting? Okay, that's where anger is. It's our flesh's response when we didn't get what we wanted. Anxiety is our flesh's response when we're afraid that we won't get what we want in the future. We're anxious about the uncertainty of our circumstances. And in the face of this uncertainty, in the face of our flesh's almost reflexive response to a lack of certainty, we have to recognize that the best remedy for this is the certainty of God's Word. One of the things that we need to do when we're battling anxiety is, is we need to stop and ask ourselves, what am I anxious about? What, what is it that I'm afraid of? We need to identify what that fear is. And then once we've identified what that fear is, we need to then meet that fear with a specific truth from Scripture. I mean, that's a pretty general principle in your Christian life that you can apply across the board. What, what you need... If you hear in a church like this, all the talk about the truth, the truth, be in the truth, the Bible, 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 read your Bible. Okay, if you just open up your Bible and kind of read it without understanding, you're going to be like, I don't get it. What you have to do is you have to take God's word and you have to take specific truths and apply them to specific heart troubles. What does God's word specifically say about this temptation? What does God's word promise me that would, that, that would help me with this specific fear? We need specific truths to address specific issues in our life, or in this case, when it comes to anxiety, specific fears that we might have. I mean, this is exactly what Philippians 4 is talking about. Philippians 4 commands us, do not be anxious for anything. And then, and then it goes on to say, in everything, in prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So don't be anxious. Instead, make sure that you're going to the Lord in prayer and make sure that you don't have an ungrateful heart. And you say, I do that. I'm anxious and then I pray and I say, Lord, take care of this. And then I go back to being anxious again. What am I missing? Well, it might be that what you're missing is what Philippians 4 goes on to say. Okay, I've I've identified an anxiety in my life. I've now gone to the Lord in prayer about that anxiety. And and now I've got to trust in the Lord. So now what am I going to do? Well, Paul says, finally, brothers, and and finally is not a good, in Philippians 4, finally wouldn't be the best translation. I think especially would be a better translation. So especially, you've prayed about your anxiety, but especially, here's what you need to do next. Whatever is true, Whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. You've been thinking about all your anxieties. You've got a case, I like to call it, you've got a case of the what ifs. You ever get a case of the what ifs? What if this happens? And what if that happens? And what if this happens? If you have to say what if before it, then it's not true. 
And you say, but it might become true. Ah, exactly, but it's not true now. Your, your mind is dwelling on all these anxieties. What you need to do is you need to go to the Lord in prayer over those anxieties. You need to trust in the peace that the Lord provides. And then you need to fill your mind with true thoughts. That's the key to dealing with anxiety. Identify specific fears and address them with specific truths. And and I mention all of that to you by way of introduction because that's exactly what Jesus is doing in John 14. As I mentioned to you a moment ago, Jesus has just let the disciples know that he's leaving them. He says, and where I am going, you cannot follow me. You've been right behind me for three and a half years, thick and thin, guys, but where I'm going, you can't go. And you can imagine the fear and anxiety that must have been welling up in these 11 disciples. There's only 11 left. Judas Iscariot had been dismissed already. These were men with troubled hearts. And in this passage, Jesus is addressing their troubled hearts. And specifically, in the small section of John 14 that we're going to be looking at, and and there's a lot in John 14. I mean, the reality is that there are deep heart troubles that we face, right? And, and, And when we face deep heart troubles, we don't need superficial truths. That's part of the reason why, how the Lord called me into pastoral ministry. I just remember as a young man saying, okay, these are big issues. How do I follow Christ and hearing superficial sermons? I remember hearing a sermon one time and and the whole main point of the sermon was let go and let God. And I said, oh, wow, that sounds profound. I wrote it down in my little book and then I went home and I thought about it. I said, what does that mean? And I realized it doesn't mean anything. It could mean whatever you want it to mean. It could be okay. It could be all right, unless you mean it one way or not. It doesn't really mean anything. It's superficial and squishy. And, 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 and the, truth, uh, uh, the truth of the matter is that the issues we face in life, especially in this day and age, we don't need superficial, squishy principles, do we? We need deep truth. I mean, in, in, in probably what was the worst night of the disciples' life, Jesus in John 14, he goes through all kinds of doctrine. In John 14, we read about the inspiration of Scripture, union with Christ, communion with Christ, the Trinity, uh, the ministry of the Holy Spirit. I and the Father are one. I mean, there is a treasure trove of deep truths that you find in John 14. And the, fi- the thing I find most amazing about all these truths is they all come together in the one common theme of here's how you address a troubled heart. And in the verses we're going to look at this afternoon, verses 1 through 3, Jesus is specifically providing his disciples with three truths Three assurances about his own ministry that they could be comforted by. Okay, guys, you're afraid because I'm leaving you. You're facing a lack of certainty. Your flesh is responding to that uncertainty with anxiety. All right, here's three things that are certain that you can run back to. And we find the first of these truths, these certainties, in verse 1. 
First, in verse 1, Christ assures his disciples of his trustworthiness. What we see here is Christ's trustworthiness. In other words, Christ is comforting his disciples with the fact that they can rest in him even in the face of their uncertainty. Jesus is essentially looking his 11 guys right in the eye and saying, guys, trust me. Now, we've all had that friend before who says, Paul, trust me. And that's when you know I'm in trouble. (laughs) No, it'll be fine. We'll get to the airport on time. Trust me. All right, we've all had friends like that. Jesus is not one of those friends. When Jesus says, trust me, we can trust him. And really, this gets to the heart of anxiety, doesn't it? Because when we're tempted the most with anxiousness, that's when our faith is the weakest, isn't it? We're not usually thinking about how trustworthy Christ is. We're not usually thinking about how reliable Christ is when we're also consumed with anxiety about how our circumstances are going to end up. The disciples needed to be careful of this. In fact, they were well on their way to being consumed with anxiety. That's why Jesus says to them, let not your hearts be troubled. And actually the way Jesus describes this here the way, the way it's phrased in the original language here makes it clear that their hearts already were troubled. Guys, you need to stop your hearts right now. You ever feel like that? You ever, as a believer, are, are, are caught up in something? Maybe it's some anxiety in your life, and all of a sudden you realize, this is sinful anxiety. I've got to stop. This is where the disciples were. And look, you can... You can understand their troubled hearts, can't you? All all these men wanted for the last three and a half years was to be near Jesus. When they first were introduced to Jesus by John the Baptist, they came to him and said, where are you staying? We're going to come there. They invited themselves over. We're just going to come and we're not going to leave because we want to be with you. And now Jesus is saying, the one thing that you wanted, you can't have because I'm going As a result, the disciples' hearts were in a troubled state. The word troubled here, it's used of Jesus' own heart. You can have a troubled heart that's not sinfully troubled. You can have a troubled heart that's being tempted with sin. You can have a troubled heart that's in sin. It's not so much speaking of whether it's sinful or not. It's speaking of of the fact that it's unsettled. Elsewhere in the Gospel of John, this same word troubled is used to speak of the waters. Remember the the afflicted man, he was trying to get to the waters when they were stirred up because he thought he would be healed by those stirred up waters. Well, the word stirred up there is the same word troubled here. You ever had your heart stirred up? You ever had your your your, your heart go from a tranquil, glassy-like sea to a stirred up hurricane. That's what Jesus is describing here. The question is, what do you do? What do you do? If, if, if you come to your pastor and say, Pastor, I'm anxious, and he says, Okay, the Bible says, Don't be anxious, stop being anxious. We'll see you Sunday. 
Well, what do you do? If I, if I tell you right now, hey, don't be anxious, and then I just was really quiet for the next 15 seconds, you almost get anxious when someone tells you not to be anxious. Again, from my, from my coaching time, it's always funny to me. Some of these little girls get up there to hit, and they've got their mom and their dad and their grandpa and their grandma and their second cousin and their uncle all yelling, hey, do this, don't be nervous, don't be nervous, swing hard, don't swing at a ball. And the, the kids are just up there like, ah, I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do. Jesus says, let not your hearts be troubled. And say, okay, well, how do, how do I do that? Well, Jesus doesn't leave us hanging. Jesus makes it clear what we should do. Believe in God, believe also in me. That's how the ESV translates. I know many of you have the New American Standard. I grabbed my ESV this morning and and brought it with me. But believe in God, believe also in me. Here... Jesus is presenting himself to the disciples as the, the ultimate source of peace, as, as the ultimate trustworthy figure. And he does so in the most incredible way. See, there's several ways that you could translate these last two phrases, believe in God, believe also in me. One, one way you could take it, is you could take this as a double statement. It could grammatically be translated this way. You believe in God and you believe in me. Statement. Statement, you believe in God. Statement, you believe in me. But I don't think that's the best way to translate it here. Another way that you could translate it is the way the ESV translates it and some other English translations as well, as a double command. It could be command, believe in God. Second command, believe in me. And, and I think that's, that's certainly grammatically a, a, a possibility, but I actually think there's one way that, that's actually a better way of understanding what Jesus is saying here. I think the first statement Jesus makes is not a command, but it's a statement. Guys, you believe in God. You've always believed in God. You're good Jews. You believe in Yahweh. You've never seen Yahweh before. Yahweh's never been physically present with you. You've never seen the Father except through me. You believe in God, statement. And then secondly, now, men, command. You need to believe in me. You need to believe in me in the same way that you've always believed in God. I think that's the best way to understand what Jesus is saying here. You guys believe in Yahweh? Now you need to trust me in the same way that you trust in Yahweh. Jesus is saying to them, believe in me as God. And I think from Philip's response in verse 8, when, when, when Philip later on in this passage says, Lord, show us the Father. Okay, yeah, we believe in the Father. Show us the Father. I think what's clear is they did believe in God, but they were struggling to understand the full implications of the fact that they had God incarnate right in front of them. Jesus is saying, you can trust me because I am God. And you know, just as much as those words were true for the 11 disciples in the upper room, they're true for us, aren't they? 
Jesus wanted them to know that, that they could trust in him as God, and he wants us to know the same thing. Even though we can't see Christ, we can trust him. Not only can we trust him, but we must trust him. That these 11 disciples, they needed to trust in what Christ was saying to them in this moment and look beyond their circumstances and uncertainties. The disciples were worried about Christ leaving them, and his response was simply to say, guys, you can trust me. And isn't that often how God responds to our anxieties? Jesus usually doesn't give us all the answers that we want to address our anxieties. Usually, in some form or fashion, from God's word, we simply hear these words again, trust me. Wait a minute, God, how could I be honest about this thing over here when if I'm honest about this thing over here, they could cost me my job over here? Well, the Bible says to be honest. You're going to have to be honest and trust me. And when you think about it, it almost feels like when Jesus says, trust me, it's leading to more uncertainty in our life. But the fact of the matter is, Life is what's filled with uncertainties. The character of Christ is absolutely certain. We can trust Him. We must trust Him. We must trust Him. If you're going to deal with anxiety in your life, it begins with a heart that is submitted to the trustworthiness of Christ. Christ is sovereign over your circumstances and you can trust Him with that. Christ is absolutely gracious to his people. You can trust him with that. Christ has never one time been deficient in love. You can trust him with that. Christ knows what's good for you better than you know what's good for you. You can trust him with that. You're going to have to trust him with these things. In fact, not only must you trust Christ with these things, but the reverse is true. A neglect of Christ in your thinking will be the source of anxiety in your life. If you neglect the reality of Christ in your life, you're constantly going to be facing uncertainties and anxieties because Christ is the only thing that's truly certain. As believers, one of the specific truths that we need in order to battle the specific temptation of anxiety is this truth that Christ is trustworthy. Dealing with anxiety, battling a troubled heart, it begins with a submission to the fact that we can entrust ourselves to Christ. Christ's trustworthiness. But then, second truth, second certainty that we see in verse 2 is what we'll call Christ's provision. Christ's provision. Christ is comforting anxious disciples and he's doing so with the fact that he is going to provide a way for them to go to heaven the disciples were anxious about jesus leaving but what they didn't understand is that jesus had to leave he had to die he had to be raised from the dead he had to ascend to his father's right side why so that they could be saved and go to heaven. The very thing that they were afraid of was the very thing that was going to secure for them a place in heaven. 
And don't we do something similar a lot of times? The Lord's promised to use trials to prepare us for heaven, hasn't he? We face these trials, what is God doing? I wish he would just get me to heaven. That's what he's doing. Disciples didn't need to be anxious about Christ leaving. We don't need to be anxious about what Christ is doing in our life. And if we are tempted towards anxiety, then what you do is you look back to the provision that he has made. And notice what it says about this provision. Verse 2 says, In my Father's house are many rooms. Now, now, the, the rooms are dwelling places. Growing up, when I went to Awanas, I memorized it. Mansions, probably not the best, by the way. The word mansions comes in from the Latin translation. It's not talking about mansions. You know, if you've got this idea that, boy, I'm going to have a big giant mansion in heaven and mine's going to be bigger than anybody else's because I went to Baltimore Bible Church and all these other people went to some other church. That's not what Jesus is talking about. Okay. This word here is best translated rooms or homes. Actually, the only other place that it's found in the entire New Testament is, is actually later in chapter 14 when, when in verse 23, Jesus says, we will come to him and make our home with him. Same word. Which I preached on that this morning at my church. Here we're learning that Christ makes a home for us in heaven at the end of this chapter, he says, and I've made a home for me in you. That's, that's amazing. But, but for our verse, the idea here is that the Lord is preparing for us a home or a dwelling place in the Father's house. Where's the Father's house? Well, earlier in John, the Father's house is described, and, and that phrase, Father's house, is used to describe the temple. Is Jesus talking about the temple here? Well, no, of course not. In fact, he, he's already told them this week, guys, the temple's going to get knocked down. So he's not talking about the temple. What is he talking about? He's not talking about an earthly temple. He's talking about a heavenly temple. He's talking about heaven. He's saying, I am going to go and I am going to prepare a home for you in heaven. And the way he does so is with some of the the most beautiful, illustrative language that you'll find. See, back in Jesus' day, uh, one of the things that a young man had to do before he could take a young lady as his bride is he had to prepare a home for his bride. Uh, he would go and make a range. As, by the way, as a father of three daughters, I like that. You show me you can make a home. You show me you can provide. Then we'll talk, okay? Let me see some pay stubs here, young man. Um, I like that. And what the young man would do is he would go and, and, and he would make arrangements with the father. And then he would go back to his father's property where his inheritance was. And there he would work in, in his father's fields and in his father's trades and and on the family inheritance and and property he would build a home there it would be uh, almost like a a a row of, of villas on this property and once the house was completed then the young man could come and take his bride and bring his bride back home That's the illustration that Jesus is using. He's saying, look, 
I am going back and I'm preparing the house for my bride is what I'm doing so that you'll have a home with me in heaven. In other words, through the provision of Christ, he is bringing us into the family of God. Earth is our abode. Heaven is our home. Sadly, we are often so worried about our earthly provisions, our earthly circumstances, that we forget about this heavenly provision. That's why when we're tempted with anxiety, we need to remember the home that we have in heaven. Friend, if you starve to death and go to heaven, it would be better than being the richest man on earth and then dying and going to hell. How often do you think of heaven? How often do you think of your Savior preparing for you a home in heaven? We're anxious. This is where our mind needs to go. Our heavenly provision. And by the way, this heavenly provision, it's abundant. He says, in my Father's house are many rooms. Now, the details and the nature of the Father's dwelling place are not addressed. He he doesn't tell us about heaven. You want to read about heaven? Go to places like the book of Revelation. I find it so funny. Everybody talks about the streets of, uh, of heaven being streets of gold as if, oh, look how rich we're going to be. No, that's not the point. <laughs> that's not the point. The point is, in heaven, who cares about gold? How much do you value asphalt? Right? I don't see any ladies wearing any asphalt uh, uh, necklaces today, right? That's what we think of asphalt. That's what we made our roads out of, right? In heaven, sure, make the roads out of gold. Who cares about gold? I don't need gold. I got Jesus. That, that's what heaven will be like. And, and, and what Jesus is saying here is there is abundance, an abundance of space. There's room for all the disciples, I find it interesting on that very night, probably less than an hour before Jesus spoke these words to the disciples, you know what the disciples were discussing? Who's the greatest? They were arguing over whose mansion was going to be bigger. And now Jesus says, no, guys. There are many homes, many dwelling places for all of you. And you know that truth It still stands today. There is enough room in heaven because of the work of Christ that anyone who believes in Christ can have a home there. Doesn't matter who you are. Doesn't matter what your background is. Doesn't matter what you've done in the past. All that matters is that this very day you believe in Christ Jesus. If you've believed in Christ Jesus, you have a home in heaven. And if you've not believed in Christ Jesus, what are you waiting on? Christ offers you the forgiveness of your sins. He offers you a relationship with God. He offers to make you a part of the Father's family. If you will repent of your sins and believe in Him, there's an abundance of room. In fact, again, I love what J.C. Ryle says. He says there will be room for all believers and room for all sorts, for little saints as well as great ones, for the weakest believer as well as for the strongest. The feeblest child of God need not fear. And that's the point, isn't it? 
There are a lot of uncertainties in this life that we're going to have to face and we'll be tempted with anxiety. But as we face these anxieties, one thing that we do not have to fear is the abundance of Christ's provision for us through the gospel. provision that Christ has made for us is abundant in every sense of the word. It provides us with abundant life. It provides us with abundant blessings. It provides for all people who believe in him in abundant ways. And just in case you're worried about losing this provision, just note it is absolutely certain. Boy, when you're struggling with anxiety, just remember Okay, my flesh is responding to uncertainty. What's the uncertainty? What's the fear? Okay, that's how anxiety works. Okay, what I need is something certain to hold on to right now. You know what's certain? What's certain is the provision that Christ has made for us. That's why Jesus says, if it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? Would Jesus lie to us? Of course he wouldn't lie to us. That's the whole point of what Jesus is doing. He is going to make a certain preparation for his disciples. And by the way, just an interesting note there at the end of verse 2. It says, I go to prepare a place for you. If you have the idea in mind that Jesus is going to go and then you know he's, he's, he's got his drill out and he's building you a mansion in heaven, he's making the preparation once he gets to heaven, that's not the point. You know what the preparation is? The preparation is the going. Going and preparing a place are the same thing because he's going to leave them through his death. The preparation is the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ Jesus. The going is the preparing. There's nothing uncertain about this preparation. When Jesus was there on the cross, what did he say? Before he gave up his soul, what did he say? It is finished. What's finished? The preparation. He's done all he needed to do on the cross. He's paid for his sins. He's going to be raised from the dead. There will be a place for his people with the Father. Jesus would not have made this promise to his disciples if it were not absolutely certain. And that's what it is. It's certain. Which means that, that at the very least, when we consider John 14, 2, this verse is a, is a call for us to remember the certainty of our salvation and the uncertainty of anxiety. If there's one thing that we can hold on to in the midst of life's storms, if there's one one thing that we can hold on to in the uncertainty of the age in which we live in, it is the death of Christ on our behalf. When you're anxious, you should start thinking about what Christ has done to secure heaven on your behalf. It's certain. And by the way, what could be more important than this? As hard as life is right now at this moment, nothing can change the fact that Christ has made this provision for us. Believer, as difficult as right now is, in about 
a billion years from now, when you're in this home prepared for you by this Savior, I wonder if we'll remember any of our anxieties. I don't know. But if we do remember them, we'll remember them like this. I remember I was worried about that. And I remember that Christ took care of that. Friend, if Christ has gone to such great lengths to save you, you don't need to worry about him abandoning you now. In fact, he says as much. In verse 18 of this same chapter, Jesus says, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. What's an orphan? An orphan is somebody without protection, without provision. Jesus says, you're not an orphan. You have my protection. You have my provision. And then he says, I will come to you. Which is interesting here because in in verse 18, that's not talking about the second coming. When he says, I will come to you, it's not talking about the second coming. It's talking about the coming of the Holy Spirit. Which means if you're a believer in Christ, you were regenerated through the work of the Spirit and, and the Spirit of Christ came and dwelt in you, which means... Christ already has come to you. He has come to you through his spirit and he will come for you again when he comes back. Which leads to one last certainty I want to go over with you. We see this last certainty in verse three. Okay, so so anxiety is our flesh's response to uncertainty when we're afraid of what's going to happen, we don't know what's going to happen, so we're afraid of what's going to happen. So, so what we need to do is identify what are we afraid of and then what does God's word say about that fear? We need something that is certain and stable that we can hold on to in the face of anxiety. So Jesus has said, okay, first, you can trust me. Believe in me. I'm trustworthy. Remember my character. Remember who I am. Then he says, remember my work. I've, I've, I've gone through my death, burial, and resurrection to, to make a home for you in my Father's house. There's nothing more important than that, so I've taken care of that, which means you can trust me to take care of everything else. So if you're looking for certain places to land in the midst of an uncertain world, the character and the work of Christ, that's where you start. But where does it finish? Verse 3, Christ reminds us of his return. Christ's return. Where can we go to in our minds? Where can we go to in our thinking? How can we take thoughts captive in the midst of anxiety? Well, well there's a lot in John 14, but, but these three verses say, go to Christ's trustworthiness, go to Christ's provision, and then thirdly, go to Christ's return. What Jesus is doing here is he is assuring his disciples that even though he is leaving them now, he will one day come back for them. The Lord had to leave his disciples. He had to be arrested. He had to be crucified. He had to make the payment for sin on the cross. He had to be raised from the dead so we could have newness of life. He had to ascend back to the Father so the Spirit could be sent to us. All of these things that physically separated us from Christ 
had to happen so that we could be spiritually united to Christ. It all had to happen. But it's not permanent. We will not be physically separated from our Savior forever. Jesus wanted his disciples to know that. He wanted them to know that he was returning and that when he does return, all of his disciples will receive their full reward. Jesus says, verse 3, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself. When it says there in the beginning of verse 3, if I go, it's not an if of uncertainty. It's an if of certainty, grammatically speaking. Or, if you like, a better translation, and this might be what your translation in front of you says, and when I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back again. In other words, guys, this is certain. This is happening. I'm going to do this. You don't want me to do this. Peter, you say you die instead of me. That's a bad plan, man. (laughs) Aren't you glad that Jesus died instead of Peter? Peter didn't understand all that. But Jesus is saying, this is happening, guys. Listen to me. When I go, and I'm going, I'm going to prepare a place for you. And then... Once I've done all that work, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to come back for you. Remember the illustration Jesus was using about the, 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 the young man who wanted to uh, marry a young lady, and what's he got to do? He makes the arrangements, and then he goes, and he prepares a home for the young lady. Then he comes back to get his bride. Can you imagine a young man doing all of that work? Sometimes it would take a, a year or more to build a house from the ground up and prove that you could provide for a family and then you come back to get your bride. Can you imagine doing all of that work and just saying, you know, I kind of like having a man cave to myself. No. I mean, I didn't have to do that when I proposed to my wife. I didn't have to build a house from the ground up. We can all thank the Lord for that. But but all that I had to go, I mean, I had to go and, 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 and talk to my soon-to-be father-in-law. I remember having to go through that. He almost choked to death that morning uh, over a chicken biscuit at Chick-fil-A when I said, hey, I'd like to marry your daughter. I thought we were going to have to call 911. And, and I can't imagine going through all of that only to say, oh, is, is today the wedding day? I don't know. I think the football game's on today. I'm, I'm not going to go. I don't think a team of wild horses could have kept me away from the church on that day. I, I, I had done everything that I had to so that I could come and collect my bride. Do you think, if nothing's going to keep me away from my bride, do you think anything's going to keep Christ away from his bride, the church? Of course not. The return of Christ is a certainty. He will come back for his bride and our eternal dwelling place will be guaranteed with him. And the result of all this will be clear. He says, I will come again and will take you to myself. And and really, 
in this verse, Jesus isn't getting into all the details of eschatology. He's not laying out how all these things work. There's lots of passages that go through the timeline of how this works. Jesus is just speaking generally. Here's what the final result is going to be. I'm going to take you to myself, and here's the purpose. That where I am, you may be also. What was the disciples' greatest fear in that moment? Where Christ is, we won't be. What was the truth that Jesus was providing to them? Oh, where I am, that's where you're going to be. And the same certainty that they could have in that is the same certainty that we as believers in Christ can have. This promise looks forward to the, 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 the return of Christ when all believers will be with him for all of eternity. Imagine what that will be like. Our eternity will be spent in the unending presence of Christ Jesus. Revelation 21, 3 and 4 says, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. That seems almost like a wispy reality. I can't even imagine it. Imagine an existence with no sin or pain or death or mourning or sorrow. It stretches my feeble imagination. And yet just because I have trouble conceiving of it doesn't mean it's not certain. It is certain. It's not only certain, it's the greatest comfort that we have as believers. And yet how often we neglect it in our own thought life. I mean, when we're struggling with anxiety, more often than not, the only thing we're thinking about is how are our present circumstances going to work out? Is this person going to do that? Is this situation going to get resolved? Is this issue at work going to be resolved? Am I going to get that pay increase? Am I going to be the one who gets cut here? Is, is this going to happen at school over here? And sometimes we try to comfort ourselves with trite little things like, you know, it'll all turn out all right. Somehow. Or we think about other worldly comforts. If I could just get through this hard thing, I've got vacation after that. The disciples were going through the hardest 24 hours of their lives, I believe. And Jesus is saying, guys, it's okay. Here's why. Because at some point, I'm coming back for you, and it'll be all right then. I'm coming back and all of my disciples are going to be raised from the dead. All of my disciples are going to be with me forever. All of my disciples are going to be glorified. Wherever I am, that's where they're going to be. When we're anxious, that's the kind of truth we need to be thinking about, isn't it? You may be facing extremely challenging uncertainties in your life. And I can't make those circumstances certain for you. 
But I can point you to the certain Savior, Jesus Christ, and remind you, He's coming back to get us, isn't He? That's a great place to start when you're battling anxiety and those uncertainties that makes your flesh want to start railing against you. You've got to watch out for anxiety. The Bible commands us not to be anxious about anything, and we've got to take that command seriously. Although, there is something that, in reality, a person should be anxious about. In fact, it's exactly what the disciples were anxious about on this night. The disciples were afraid of the one thing that you should be anxious about, and that is the absence of Christ Jesus in your life. If you're here today and you do not know Christ, you should be worried about that. The worst thing that could happen to any person in the world, the very worst thing that could happen to any person in this world is that they would be eternally separated from Christ. That all the provision we've talked about this afternoon would not be yours because you never repented and believed in Christ. If you don't know Christ, you should be anxious about that. But friend, you don't have to be. This very day, you can put your trust in Christ and be saved by the Savior. This very day, you can have your anxieties dealt with. This very day, you can come to the certain Savior who provides comfort to troubled hearts. This very day, you can believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and never have to worry about being separated from Him again. And if you're here today and you've already done this, then praise the Lord. If, if you're here today and you've already believed in Christ Jesus, which I trust most of you have, then the only thing that you could legitimately be anxious about, you no longer have to worry about. Because as a believer in Christ Jesus, you will never be separated from your Savior. Isn't that comforting? Let's pray together. Lord, we do thank you so much for the comfort that your word provides to us. We thank you for the truths that you've provided for us in your word, especially in John chapter 14. Lord, we do believe, but also, Lord, we pray that you would help our unbelief. There are so many times that we get so focused on the things of this world that we forget the certainties of your promise. Lord, May you bring these truths to our mind when we struggle in those ways. Lord, I pray for hearts that are struggling with anxiety. Lord, I pray that you would comfort those hearts, provide your grace, give sweet, sweet guidance to these suffering saints. And Lord, help them more and more to entrust themselves to their Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose precious name we pray. Amen. You have been listening to Baltimore Bible Church. To hear other messages or to find out about upcoming events and where we meet for weekly church services, please visit us online at www.baltimorebiblechurch.org. Baltimore Bible Church reserves all copyright protection under applicable law. Our copyright policy is available on our website and includes instructions for and limitations on duplicating all printed media, CDs, and digital files.